Welcome back to the Ramsey Centre, and this is the third episode of John Fitzgerald's talk on trust in a time of pandemic. The word propaganda has an antiquated ring about it in English, but it's still very current in China. True, few organisations outside the Vatican and Leninist vanguard parties have ever really felt comfortable using the term. In fact, the Vatican invented it with the creation of the propaganda fide, the sacred congregation of the propagation of the faith. And the communists use the term because the propaganda bureau is one of the few that Lenin laid down in his blueprint for communist party organisations. No vanguard party can be without one. Still, the Vatican and Chinese Communist Party tried to keep up with the times, each in their own way. In 1982, uh, Pope John II tweaked the Latin to remove the word propaganda from the Vatican office of that day, which then changed in other languages, including English. It's no longer propaganda either. China's communists took a different course. The party retained the Chinese term propaganda, in Chinese for domestic use, but in dealing with foreigners, chose to translate this word as publicity, not propaganda, and crafted the party propaganda bureau, and called the party propaganda bureau the publicity office, and renamed the director of the party's central propaganda bureau, the minister for information, all in English. In Chinese, nothing changed. Now, English happens to be our national language, not China's, and we have an obligation to correct it when we see an error. If, as Beijing insists, we have to avoid using the word propaganda to translate the Chinese word propaganda, then disinformation would be a far closer fit. And the Minister for Disinformation would be a better translation for the relevant party office. I'll be using those terms from here on. The Office of Propaganda Fide in Rome was, after all, originally known as the Office of the Inquisition, then changed to propaganda, and more recently, from propaganda. The connection between propaganda, disinformation and terror in China is historically far closer. China's vast state disinformation system is tasked with managing and controlling all flows of information all forms of content across every cultural, media and educational institution in China. There's no exception, along with all their branches and sub-agencies overseas, including Confucius Institutes. Everything we could possibly want to learn from China about that country's civilization, its history, its culture, now comes bearing the stamp of approval from the Ministry of Disinformation. Otherwise, it doesn't get out. Now, this wasn't always the case, but under General Secretary Xi Jinping, there's no avoiding it. The stamp of approval, as I noted, extends to Confucius Institutes, but also to manuals on Confucianism and business practice, which come out in great number in China, and, and to much else beside. All of it, as Jilas would say, a sham and an illusion. Let's take a look at some of these cross-cultural training manuals for business people published in China. They generally begin with a gentle lesson on etiquette. Chopsticks, table manners, name cards, hierarchy. But end up with heavier lessons on China's culture and history. At some point, they offer advice on the critical importance of guanxi, that is, connections or relationships, for doing business in China. And they attribute this emphasis on guanxi 
to ancient culture and history. Reading the manuals, in fact, it's easy to come away with the impression without, that without making the right connections, Guanxi, you can't do anything in China. But once you have them, once you have the Guanxi, there's nothing you can't do. Now, it's pretty close to the truth. The manuals are quite right to highlight the importance of Guanxi for getting anything done in China. What they don't explain is why these connections matter. Most manuals attribute the practice of Guanxi to the value placed on personal feeling and friendship in China's civilization tradition. But it's far simpler than that. People rely on Guanxi for personal relations because they don't trust one another. As a rule, people don't consent to deal with someone they don't know unless they're reassured about them by someone they do. And of course, they can hold the one they do know accountable for the conduct of the one they don't. At the end of the day, this is what Guanxi is about and how it works. It's less about culture and history, tradition and civilization, fellow feeling and friendship, and far more about building interpersonal trust in an otherwise lawless social landscape where trust and accountability are in very short supply. Contrast Australia, a society with high public trust, where people depend on others to do the right thing, friends and strangers alike. Australians may not trust government. They may not trust big business, but on the whole, they trust one another. Public trust is strong. In China, people do trust the central government, or so they tell interviewers, but they don't trust local officials. They don't trust apparatchiks and they certainly don't trust one another. In the absence of public trust, people build trust among themselves as they must through personal networking. That is, they build and use Guanxi networking as personal trust networks to advance their family and business interests in competition with everyone else and to cover one another's backs in the event of trouble. These kinds of personal networks are especially useful in dealing with the law in China. The law counts for very little in People's China as law, but the country's police, prosecutors, procurators and courts can come down very heavily on offenders if officials tell them to, or if people with powerful contacts in government call on the law and justice systems to take down their rivals or their competitors. The law doesn't matter until it does. And when it does, it matters a great deal. At that point, good personal networks are essential for arguing, for buying, for burrowing your way out of trouble. Those who draw on their personal networks in this way often point to China's culture and history to explain their behavior as if China's rich Holstein's history and civilizational traditions were complicit in their misconduct. Cross-cultural training manuals are part of this story. They tell the foreigners they must learn about the country's history and culture if they want to build relationships and do business in China. I just don't explain why. Let me quote one. Foreign business people should make their judgments based on a good understanding of the history and culture of China, says Tony Liu in one of these manuals published in Beijing. And yet, it's far from clear that the prevailing business style has much to do with China's history, 
culture or civilization. The way people do business is largely shaped by the way the party owns and runs the country. Its apparatchiks control access to markets and resources, and they show very little regard for property rights or rule of law. This is the way communist governments have always worked everywhere, and it's why trust is in short supply in the world of business and politics in China. Under Ministry of Disinformation guidelines, the party rates very little mention in these cross-cultural business manuals. Instead, we're offered lessons in pop ethnography, contrasting China's so-called collective spirit against Western individualism, selflessness in contrast to Western selfishness, hierarchy in contrast to flattened or equal relations in the West, personal loyalty in contrast to impersonal rules-based systems in the West, and what they regard as a Chinese emphasis on personal trustworthiness in contrast to contractual obligations to define the West. This list of Chinese characteristics makes up the standard repertoire of culture and civilization to be found in cross-cultural training manuals coming out of China. It's replicated in Confucius Institutes in Australia and reproduced ad infinitum in professional intercultural consultancies around the country. And needless to say, it's reproduced in former McKinsey consultant Peter Walker's book on overcoming misconceptions. These east-west contrasts are not entirely wrong, but they're overstated and they're selective. They're overstated in the sense that ideals of community service, loyalty, honour, selflessness, collective good, persistence, obedience to superiors and so on, are hardly alien to Australia or the West. Not at all. It's a matter of context and emphasis. And they're selective as well in the sense that the austere rules-based behaviour said to typify Western societies in these business manuals have clear parallels in classical Chinese thought, every bit as ancient as Confucianism. But they're particularly selective where they implicitly support Communist Party claims to rule while not mentioning the party. The claim, for example, that people in China have a collective spirit is amplified in other party tracks that maintain people in China are culturally predisposed to be governed by a Leninist party because collective action comes naturally to them. It follows that any criticism of the party's authoritarian style of rule is a smear on the civilizational heritage of China's people. Not so. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. No foreign business person should really underestimate the drive of individuals to get ahead in China. It's formidable. And foreigners who imagine they're working with partners operating in a collective spirit will be taken to the cleaners. But references to China's collective spirit are also misleading in implying that people in China are willing to cooperate with one another. As a rule, they are not, unless they must, either because they're dealing with friends and family and face reciprocal obligations, or because they're compelled to do so by authorities. Absent these two conditions, Few strangers cooperate willingly on anything in China. They could find themselves in trouble. Again, it's not a matter of culture and history, but a question of who can you trust. This is the Communist Party's doing. It has nothing to do with Confucianism or Chinese civilization. The party works to ensure there's little sign of collective behavior of the kind that Australians normally associate with voluntary cooperation. For example, running a rural fire service or a netball club 
or being part of a local charity. All such organisations in China, all clubs and societies that might be expected to sit between personal networks and the party state, are outlawed. They're called civil society organisations, a term that itself is regarded as so dangerous that it's been banned from the classroom and media. People's China presents itself as a collective society that bans collectives, that outlaws everything we in Australia would regard as indicating collective action and organisation. It's just forbidden. That's the communists doing, not Confucius. So something else that you just mentioned, John, I'd like to, to draw you out on a bit, a, a term that a lot of people are familiar with, even if they've never been to China, but it's soon learned by anybody who has to do business there. And this is the term guanxi. Um, you, you, you do soon learn when you, when you go there that it's a pretty slippery concept. Um, and you make the excellent point that guanxi is actually a way of keeping essential social and economic functions going at a time when people don't trust each other. Uh, it, and if, if, to put it this way, if the default in China is distrust rather than trust, then you evolve a system which will accommodate that default. So, you know, the, 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 the thing I always remember is that we say in, in, in English, we say the early bird catches the worm and the Chinese equivalent saying is the early bird gets shot. You know, it's a different attitude towards trust. So, again, since this is a center for civilization and we try to take a long view, again, I'm asking you, I suppose, a question about Guanxi and the Chinese past. So has the culture always been, in a sense, distrustful like this? Does Guanxi actually have its roots in ancient practices and social and political arrangements? You know, heaven is high and the emperor is far away, so you work with the people that are close by. Now you say that much of this is the Communist Party's um, doing, but isn't this also on the long scale? And you talked a bit about this in, in our Q&A isn't on the long scale, uh, on the historical scale, this is kind of an imperial system in which the central government has to engage with the provinces, has to develop some sort of leverage over the faraway local centres of power. Um, so are we watching, do you think, something like a new emperor in Beijing thinking up new ways of subjugating distant provinces or even troublesome foreign powers? Can you tell us anything about this and about, including about traditional Chinese attitudes to trade with foreigners, which is quite topical just now? Let me try. I think the idea of public trust is a fairly modern one. In most societies, including much of Europe, um, personal networks and personal trust was the way business and social conduct social relations were conducted until really quite recent times. I mean, the merchants of Venice were a tight bunch. You know, mm. the way trade took place around the Mediterranean wasn't what we think of as international law and contract. It was through networks based on trust, personalised mm. networks. So much of business and social history around the world, not just in China, features what the Chinese call mm. guanxi. Mm. Um, I guess what happens in the modern era <clears throat> is that other forms of trust come to be built over the top of personal trust through rule of law, through contracts, through a public, an ethic of public spiritedness, um, through public scrutiny of government and so on. 
This happens progressively and gradually throughout Europe, North America and Australia, and it was happening in China. There's nothing that predetermines the mistrust in China today to be found in China's history. Mistrust was common everywhere in pre-modern times. Building public trust is one of the great achievements of the modern state. So my suggestion that the Communist Party is responsible for China's failure to develop that trust is to say that the Chinese Communist Party has stepped outside that wider historical trend. Uh-huh. It's insisted that the party is above the law. The party constitution is above the state constitution. Well, if that's the case, how do you get anything done? You need to know people in the party who are powerful and influential. You need to be able to build networks of trust which link up to powerful people in order to get anything done. I mean, we could ask Andrew Forrest, who recently told us that he has good connections in China, and on that basis he can deliver a great many, you know, great quantums of <coughs> uh, PPE, medical equipment and so on, to help us in this current crisis. Well, the question we could ask is, why is it that you need great connections in China to do something that should be normal. Mm. And what is it about trade in China that requires very special relationships and friendship as distinct from contracts, openness and rule of law? Mm. I think a great many other Australian businesses have fallen foul Mm. of that dilemma in China, that Mm. everything is based on personal trust, but at the end of the day a contract counts for nothing if you Mm. get the party offside. Mm. that there is no public trust. That's why I say in China, the persistence of Guanxi as the major form of social and economic dealing has to do with the parties resisting China moving towards models of public trust which would involve rule of law and so on. China was moving that direction. I must say, I believe China would move in that direction until Xi Jinping arrested 300 prominent rights lawyers and sent a message, we're going to stop this. None of this rule of law. This is ruled by the party using law. We're it. We are the sovereign state. You are our subjects. Do as you're told.